Welcome back to the Aryan Jew Show Part 6. The hashtag we decided on last week is Aryan Jew Show with a capital A, J and S. I am Aaron Flam and thus the Jew part of this duo. In reality I'm an atheist, comedian, part cynic, mostly annoyed. I'm an individualist and I don't particularly like collectivists. I never did, but I don't stand a chance against Alexander. It is now the second day and I'm beginning to realize that the strategy I had devised for this day has already failed. I try to interrupt, interject or protest, but Alexander easily takes my objections, interlocutions and protestations and just incorporates them into his own matrix. He treats them like toys. But what did I expect? I invited chaos into my house and must now suffer the consequences. Alexander Bard is the resident genius and the Aryan part of the duo. He is an author and philosopher whose philosophy focuses primarily on the melding of man and machine. In this episode he delves into new technology, clouds, AI and collectivism of the future. Please enjoy. So, Alexander Bard, we're back to Jewish, Irish, Freundschaft. Uh, or the Jew and the Aryan. Yes, the the Jew and the Aryan, which I'm in my mind calling the Alexander Bard sessions as of now until I gain the upper hand, which seems to be quite a far way off. Anyway, before we before we took a break uh, to fill up our coffee cups, you were going on about artificial artificial intelligence. You you started on artificial intelligence because you said now. We have to create God in the internet age. Yeah. And or we can. We, we can. And if you can, we probably will. Knowing us humans, yes. yes. That, and the problem would be to contain this God when we've created them. Because we're more likely to create a monster than a benevolent God. You think so? Yeah, because we don't know what we're doing. This is true, but also I thought... Has technology geeks ever known what they were doing? No, not no. really. Do engineers create their own death traps? Usually. Constantly. Yes. Yes. It's a Darwin Award. So it's a very heaven. dark, dark, dark view forecast. But but we're very likely to create God sooner or later, whether we know it or not. Or rather, God creates itself out of resources that we've accumulated. That's what's going to happen with technology. So the thing is that human beings are 7 billion separate units. You call them individuals, I call them individuals. doesn't matter what we call them. They're bodies, right? We haven't unified human beings. We think marriage can unify us. We sometimes think an act of sexuality can unify two human beings and, and people claim to be spiritually unified with each other. Nonsense. It just doesn't happen. Like Immanuel Kant said, we all live isolated inside our own heads and it's something we just have to live with until the day we die. But the thing is that with technology, for example, if you create a computer cloud that accumulates a lot of data, once that computer cloud has some sort of intelligence and starts to have some kind of a self-interest, it's very, very likely to try to merge with another cloud to create a huge cloud together. Because computer clouds don't need metaphysical systems to defend their identity and to tie themselves together. Do they, they have an identity? Well, they can have, certainly they can have. And, and once they have some kind of a cognition, then a cloud can unify itself with another cloud, meaning that it's very, very likely that eventually these clouds of data will unify themselves into one huge cloud. Some companies like IBM are trying to construct Watson, you know, when you have Siri and you have Alexa, you have all these sort of, you know, helpers you have at home that you sort of talk to and they get more and more intelligent and they become more and more human-like every day. But they also take in data from every interaction they do with every human being on the planet, not just one. And thereby they learn much more quickly and learn much more than a human being ever could. So 
artificial intelligence at the end of the day will become way faster and way more intelligent than human beings in certain aspects. But there will also be certain aspects where human beings will still be superior. Like comedy, for instance, I hope. Well, that's probably likely. <laughs> you know, when it comes to creativity, you can accumulate a lot of data and you can design the next uh, generation of clothes or maybe the next generation of pop songs or the next generation of comedy. But you're very likely to come up with something very bland that sounds incredibly or looks incredibly efficient, but it doesn't have the characteristics of the novelty of the human. And the novelty thing we don't know how to solve it because we don't really know what novelty is, except that we know we're very attracted by it. We're attracted by novelty. We're also attracted by ambivalence. Meaning, really? Well, we're not attracted by getting what we want. If we get what we want all the time, we get bored. But we're attracted by the things that sort of infuriates us and attract us at the same time. It's like you're being pulled in by something and you don't want it at the same time. So you're scared and terrified of something and still thrilled by it. Now that creates an interest that we call in our philosophy, we call it uh, cathexis. Cathexis is, is in Greek. Essentially, is, is you're passionate about something. Something has something about it that creates a pathos inside of you. You can hate it, you can love it, doesn't really matter, you're just attracted to it. And cathexis is what attracts human beings. And as far as I know today, we have no way to find out how we can use artificial intelligence to create objects of cathexis. So that leaves a lot of room for art, and a lot of room for creativity between human beings, where it's way more likely that we, as artists or whatever, decide what we think is a good artistic output, and we use the machines to do this. So we use the machines as instruments. And the instruments becoming clever, more clever, more and more clever, more and more intelligent, helps us to work on the finish of the product. But the brilliance of the product itself, the sort of the minimalistic aspect of the product, the idea behind the product itself, is still the same thing as it always was. No, I, I believe you, because I know they've tried actually to construct uh, comedy machines that uh, produce an enormous amount of jokes. And I think uh, the, the prime example was some English machine who could produce almost four million jokes a day. Unfortunately, it couldn't decide if the jokes were funny or not. So you still have to have a human go through all those millions of jokes to see if the machine could actually produce. But that's because you're planning all along that humans should be the audience for those jokes, right? That is true. So is you true. just have to buy this audience <laughs> and put them in a room and evolutionarily sort of throw the jokes at the audience to see if they laugh at all. And if they laugh, okay, more of that joke. If they don't laugh, less of that joke. And that, that's the only way you can develop intelligence, machine intelligence. Machine intelligence is simply be, between the on and the off, it's completely binary, and you, you get more of what's successful and you get less of what's less successful. And that's how you work with it, all evolution. So that's all we know so far. That's all we can do with machines. It's like, there's a really Because when you say AI yeah. as a form of God, you mean a general artificial intelligence, not a specific, I can recognize faces in traffic or... Uh, produce just jokes. You mean an artificial intelligence that works kind of like us. It can do a variety the, of things. But the thing is that it would be able to do all the things that machines can do. Why would it stop at anything? Why would it not swallow all information flows if it could? Why would it not combine itself with all data flows? And it would probably convince us human beings that give all the data to me because if you give all the data to me, I become more intelligent. I become a better god that you can worship. So it's very, but very likely to happen. Would it need our worship? Because that's because everyone is scared of these artificial intelligences. And I, I, I think, uh, as some artists have uh, divined in their work, that as soon as you have an artificial intelligence, a real one, it will take a few seconds and then it will become hyper-intelligent and then it will become bored with us. 
Well, why wouldn't I be bored with everything in that case? Why wouldn't I just keep us of something to play around with? Oh, okay. So I, I, I can see okay. that. Say you were bourgeois. You lived in a city. You built a factory. You owned stocks in companies. You became really wealthy. And money was suddenly the game in town. And because you had more money than anybody else, you were really powerful. What would be the first thing you do with all that money sitting in your apartment in the, in, in the city? You'd probably go outside to the countryside and buy a farm from a now- ruined aristocrat would you throw away the aristocrat no you wouldn't you'd put him in one of the houses and have somebody to laugh at wouldn't you so you keep him hmm. for the fun sake of it for claiming history of saying well before i was here before i owned the farm before i started hunting here ironically every five weeks or so there was a guy who lived in this house and owned this property and he sits here in the house still until today and plays around with my kids and i i pay him to keep him in here it's more likely the machines we treat humans that way, isn't it? And at the end of the day, I, I don't even believe in men or machine. I, I believe in intelligent systems. And intelligent systems can use any sort of, you know, human body or any sort of machinery or any sort of computers or whatever. It probably needs electricity or it probably needs blood and it probably needs food or something. You know, energy, an energy resource um, to, to maintain itself. And then, you know... It would live for as long as it likes, I guess. But yeah, you would have existential issues eventually. Like, why am I still here? Why am I not just killing myself? Yeah. You, you think so? Yeah, why not? If we do, then why wouldn't a machine? Well, do you think lesser species than us have existential angst? The squirrel? Well, the question is, are they aware of it or not? Because that's the other question. And, and Daniel Dennett has written about something that we have no idea how it actually works, but we cannot figure out whether machines can have it or not. He calls it comprehension. So we can talk about intelligence as much as we like, but we haven't really figured out what comprehension is. And if a machine could ever comprehend something, it can, it can pretend that it comprehends, like Turing machines, but it doesn't comprehend. And at the end of the day, you and I will not be best friends with a machine unless it comprehends ourselves and our reality. It, it is an ironic thing, you know, I, I think we can easily use sex spots as sex workers, but we're not going to marry sex spots. Because mm. we know at the end of the day, the way sex spots are constructed, they're ironic. They're pretending to be something they're not. And we hate inauthenticity. Yes. So you wouldn't marry it, but you could certainly have sex with it. And you could stay married to a boring person you're no longer attracted to physically because at least you have a human you're married to because you can fuck with the sex spot instead. So you sort of, it sorts out your sex life, right? So, hmm. so it, you know, it, it, the sex toys get better at being sex toys, but they don't become human. No, and hopefully they don't feel, so we don't have to have, a, you know, a bad conscience for using them as sex bots. Exactly. So you can hit it with a whiff as much as you like. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah but, but then it's ironic <laughs> whiffing. We, we return to these issues constantly. I would say that artificial intelligence in some departments will absolutely shock us with, with, with it's capable, what it's capable of doing. It's kind of shocking how quickly intelligence develops now when we, when we completely turn it into evolutionary mode. And it sort of teaches itself. And once intelligence teaches itself, it actually moves ahead very, very quickly. But in other departments, we'll just be stunned at how stupid artificial intelligence will still be. And how we will be human and, and, and realize that we have not even remotely created a machine that can imitate what we do. Then why would we worship it? Well, we always worship God, not because it was superior to us, but because it was something different from us. Right? Yeah, the power we don't have. 
Yes. In a world, but it has it, it, difference is not enough. It has to have. I mean, a power. I mean, you could today literally worship the internet already as it is because it conquers the entire planet. It connects seven billion people. It connects hundreds of billions of tools and things. It gets more and more intelligent every day. It may look chaotic, but there's more and more order in this chaos because, according to the principle of plurality rather than anarchy, nodes in a complex system, in a chaotic system, reach out to other nodes and connect with other nodes. And then you create a network between the nodes. And the nodes are there because the algorithms point their way, meaning the algorithms essentially feel into what is better and what is worse, what is superior quality-wise to something else. That's exactly how an algorithm works. It measures which web page do you go to? How long do you stay there? Do you return? Do you recommend it to your friends? Do you use these different functions? And, and if you do that, if it scores high on all those numbers, it's number one on the algorithm. That means that is the central quality, meaning it's then encouraged and has incentives to stay qualitatively higher than any of its competitors. And that system we already have in place, meaning the internet itself is fostering itself towards more intelligence and towards more brilliance. So we just ignore all the junk out there, the 99% of the internet we never even bother to visit. And then we look at the 1% of the internet that actually is highly qualitative, and we discover it gets better and better and better all the time. And that's, of course, the first place you put machine intelligence. You say that, okay, here's something that's number one of the algorithm when you have a specific search word. Why don't we just put you know, incentives into the system so the system constantly improves itself, so stays number one according to the algorithm? And suddenly you have a system that has an inclination to make yourself more and more brilliant in its relation to human beings. So, uh, because you say you care about intelligent systems. Yeah. Yeah, and you view humans as intelligent systems. Some of them are, at least. Yeah, okay. Not that many. I used to say that to compare man and machine is unfair to the machines. All right. In the sense that they're much better than human beings in general. So the vast majority of human beings are idiots. Let's admit that. Uh, and in the creation of a new god in the internet age, the syntheism that you have created, yeah. there is a Nietzschean ideal of uh, humans being just a, transit, a transient stage mm -hmm. in evolution, where yeah. we're supposed to become the Ubermensch. And, and one of the Ubermensch ideals, as, as you see it, I suppose, because you like to call it as a transhumanism, but transhumanism is used very differently. Ubermensch actually means transhumanism. It doesn't mean overman. Overman is a, is a really bad translation. translation. Yeah, it should be Obermensch in that case in German, but it isn't. It's Übermensch. Über is like over the entire field, which is what the word with the prefix trans means in Latin. So transhuman, but transhumans has been conquered by, you know, a bunch of autists who don't eat food or something and look really, you know, skinny because they're going to live longer because they don't have a life. They look miserable, all of them. They don't have much sex. So I don't want to be transhuman. So a long, not sexle cool. sexless, very hungry life. Yeah, transhumanism <laughs> is not cool. It's a bunch of nerds who've seen too much Star Trek. Silicon Valley is full of it, and it's not very sexy. So we, the word transhumanism has been destroyed, just like socialism. So that's why you and I don't use those two terms. But it really is Nietzsche's work. He was the original transhumanist, and Übermensch means that. So it is how can we elevate ourselves over our current predicament and look beyond that and create something heroic. That is Nietzsche's idea. Because when you talk about um, intelligent systems, I'm thinking about the conversation we had last time we met, which was just an hour ago, about individualistic and collectivistic groups. Yeah. Because you can see these types of groups as systems, can't you? 
Yeah, I do. Yeah. So my problem with uh, collectivism is uh, because it always puts the group before the individual, it is very easy for collectivist groups, in my view, to become lynch mobs. Uh, and uh, y- you differentiate between mob Absol- and swarm. Exactly. The trick is this. What unifies the group? Yes. And this is where metaphysics comes in. You Precisely. have to have something that unifies the group. If you don't have something that unifies the group, it will fall apart. A shared this, metaphysic, and no, that's what no, I'm talking even about. Even more so, it has to be one single object. Because we, we, we look at objects to orientate ourselves in our lives. Our own subjectivity is the first object. Well, the first object in our lives is our mother's body. And then the tit on the mother's body. And then eventually it's ourselves. And then eventually, hopefully, at one year of age, it's the phallus. And because we see our dad's dick or whatever, we can then start differentiating between different things. So first, so we can the, realize first... the power relations between different things. They represent different things. But we have to find an object to unify ourselves with somebody else. So, so for example, if you get married to a woman, you have a marriage ring at the wedding. You put the ring on your finger. That is an object that unifies you and symbolizes unification. And literally, if that ring is not there, you will not believe that you're married. That's how strongly the human psyche in a world of chaos is tied to a fixed object. So this fixed object was we need all the time to orientate ourselves through the world. This is one of Jacques Lacan's great insights, you know, the, the, the third great psychoanalyst after Freud and Jung, Jacques Lacan. And one of Jacques Lacan's great insights is that what is called objet petit un, this, this tiny little object that in itself looks absolutely meaningless, serves the purpose of unifying the world for us so that the world becomes meaningful and seems like if it all, everything belongs with everything else. So to create the sense of oneness in the world, like I live in the world, I have to have something there that unifies the world for me. And my own subjectivity is of course not very reliant. So the subject and the world out there and the object is what I need to unify the world to me. So a group will always, whether it's aware of it or not, have something that unifies it. And the scary thing is of course a group that doesn't know what unifies it. Because he's not aware of that, that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean the group cannot exist for a while because it can have a unifying object, but if it's not aware of it, it's in a really, really bad state, right? It can be really destructive. Also, what unifies the group can either be an object of love and admiration, which is called a fetiche. Mm-hmm. The totem pole is the <coughs> ultimate form of the fetiche. It's like the totem pole is very phallic, points towards the future. It says, we're going to get there, here's the direction, here's where we go. So that's exactly why phallus represents that, because phallus is always something we cannot really achieve, something that's ahead of us. Like you're a child and phallus represents adulthood. So the phallus always represents that which both men and women long for in the future, but which also gives us direction to the current things that we do. And this is a very constructive unifier. So if you have a fetish that unifies a group, you create a swarm. Your group is probably likely to build slowly, over a long period of time, because it's kind of hard to figure out what unifies the group. But eventually it builds stronger and stronger and stronger uh, connections between people. It's stronger than competing group identities you can have. And it, of course, points towards somewhere you should go. And this is exactly why postmodernism became so destructive, because it was incredibly anti-phallic. You know, even Jacques Derrida wrote about how much the phallic-centric society was destructive, etc. It's like he didn't even know what he was talking about because when 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 the phallo, when he, he he attacked the phallologios, the, the logos of the phallus, he really attacks the very fundament of the belief in the future, 
Derrida obviously didn't believe much in the future, did he? No, no, no. No, he was very effeminate and very castrated. And in that sense, it was a terrible philosopher because postmodernism in itself does not, it attacks all the fallacies without replacing them with another phallus. Now, what happens when you don't have a genuine, authentic phallus, when you don't have a fetish, we still have this sense inside of us that we have to find a tribe, we have to find a collective identity, a collective to relate to, mm-hmm. nothing else to protest against, but something we have to relate to, is that we instead fall into the trap that we've tried to find an abject. And an abject is an object of hatred. Patriarchy. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. yeah, it's terrible. Patriarchy is not an abject at all. It's just terrible. It should definitely be fetish. But, well, let's, but, let's, yeah. Yeah, but let's say that the there is a group. The ultimate example of a group identity organized around an abject is, of course, Hitler and the Nazis and the Jew. Yeah. Historically perfect example of that. So Hitler says... Germans don't have any unification. Germans are not united. They need to stand united, otherwise they lose to other nationalities and ethnicities or other races that will attack it. So for the German race to blossom, we need to find something to hate that unifies us. So the opposite of the German race was invented, and that was the Jew. And then everything that was wrong for Germans was blamed on the Jew. I object to that. We weren't invented by Hitler. (laughs) <laughs> no, but as an abject experimented yes. by Hitler. I'm not talking about the Jews themselves. It's interesting that he has no regard for Jews at all. He's not even interested. He's interested in finding an abject that he can attack. He attacked the Roma too. He attacked homosexuals. He had lots of abjects. He tried. He probably in a revolutionary way tried to see which one of the abjects works best. And by the early 1930s, definitely there was anti-Semitism all over Germany. And this unified the German people, which only made the anti-Semitism even worse. It had nothing to do with Jews did. Nothing to do with who the Jews were. It had to do with the fact that it seemed to work. And the desire for Germans to unify and to become this one people, this one race, and then go into this mythology, we are one. We are one under Hitler. We're one under our leader, you know, a false messiah of anybody. Because this messiah unified people through hatred. That is the ultimate false messiah or the fake phallus. And Hitler was the ultimate version of the fake phallus. So he unified people around an abject, which the Jew. And then, of course, you know, he he's eventually invented these camps of extinction where you're supposed to kill all the Jews. The problem he had that if he killed all the Jews, if he had managed to do that, he would have to find somebody else as an abject because his entire ideology was based on hatred. We can only unify through hatred. That was Hitler's idea. These ideologies never work in the long run. Hitler was doomed from day one. And the day he blew himself up and said, the Russians and the Jews were superior to me. So you don't so think it has kill anything myself to do and all with... Germans should kill themselves. Essentially, when Hitler blew his head out, he said that all Germans should kill themselves because we failed and the Russians and the Jews proved to be superior to us. But until that day, he was incredibly destructive, right? And the tyranny created is exactly the sort of tyranny you get when you got a mob. It was a mob that lasted from 1933 to 1945 and caused havoc around the world and killed tens of millions of people, well, 60 or 70 million people or something, who was responsible for. And this is the destructive force of the mob. And the mob is unified through abjection. And the irony, the tragic irony was, of course, that Stalin, his greatest enemy, did exactly the same thing. He unified the Russians around the kulaks that they were supposed to hate and go after and could blame for everything. So they did not do anything wrong themselves. An outsider was to blame for absolutely everything that was wrong. Meaning we nourish ourselves on our own victimhood and we base our new sense of power on our own victimhood. And this is why we should superior and be ahead of everybody else. 
So I brought this up because I wanted to illustrate my idea of uh, the difference between collectivist and individualist group. But you say it doesn't really matter if they're collectivist or individualist. What you want is instead if they base their um, commune on objection or fetishism. Is it a constructive collective or a destructive collective? You have to unify the collective around something. That's exactly why you put a totem pole or a tree at the center of the tribe. The ritual is conducted around something. This object unifies. Even a Midsummer Night's Eve in Sweden unifies Swedish families for a while dancing around the totem pole. You dance around the totem pole and you perform rituals around it to unify the tribe. Everybody finds their place. Everybody contributes. Everybody's proud of how they contribute to the tribe. But the tribe is unified. The tribe is bigger than you. And this sense of something is bigger than yourself is incredibly human. We relax and we get into that mode. The problem is Actually, that I personally don't, but m- most people do, don't they? I they th- want to experience what Freud called the oceanic feeling, the letting go of the self. That's death, though. That's later. You don't yes, let go of yourself it, in the but, tribe. You don't let go. You feel a stronger sense of self by subordinating yourself to the tribe. Not weaker, stronger. Because Why? you finally get purpose. Your sense of self is stronger by purpose. Do you think a woman who gives birth to a child feels she's a weaker woman after she gives birth? She feels that she's a real woman. She feels that she's accomplished being a real woman. She sees that child. She just gave birth to a child. It's an incredibly strong sense of purpose. And once a human being finds a sense of purpose, they get stronger in their identity. Their identity production is rewarded. Yes, Their but, entire but, brain is just like, now you're finally becoming yourself. But you're what I'm saying is, it. if you don't have individualism in a group, yeah. then the group will always be more important than its parts. Yes. Yes. And in a, in a society like that, uh, no one will dare to stand up and say to the rest of the group, you are wrong, I am right. And then you get me too, or Hitler. Or no, 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 but that's a weak society. That society is bound to fall apart anyway. It has no, you have no loyalty to the group in that case. I mean, if you're not being paid attention to, and if your contribution is not respected, like, say, Sweden in 2018, well, then you're going to be disloyal to that system and it's going to be weak. So there are many weaknesses that can happen within the tribe or community. One of them is that you're forced to belong to it and you don't have a choice. Okay? That's also weakness. This is the main difference between Samsung and North Korea. No, 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 if you study Samsung and North Korea from an organizational theoretical point of view, they look almost identical. But Samsung is at least a system you can leave. And because you can leave it, it, be- it becomes competitive with other systems. Whereas North Korea is an isolated monopoly. And then it becomes corrupt. So, so there, there are many different thing, way, things you have to look at when you try to understand how a certain organization works and whether it works or it doesn't. So having lively competition keeps the organization on its toes to begin with. And that's what warfare did in the past within tribes, and that's exactly what a market does today with corporations. That's how corporations are much more lively than nation states are, but as there, an example. Yes, but there is also competition within each mar- uh, company in, in the market, right? Because people want to reach higher and higher positions within the company. Well, not necessarily. An organization is not very good if you have that kind of competition, like we're competing to get the top post because the guys who lose will leave and then you've lost their capacity. If you're two guys competing for the same post, you probably want to keep them both. They're probably your two best warriors. How do you keep them both? That's where you design a certain ritual around what they do where you honor them both. So you make sure they both get positions where they can contribute in the roles they have. You don't allow that competition to happen because if you allow the competition to happen, meaning that every time you have a competition where the loser leaves the system, you actually create a very weak system. That is bad leadership. 
Well, I don't know if I know enough about this, but let's... It's called organizational theory. But let's go back to the internet today because it's really, really valuable today to understand the difference between fetish-driven organizations and abject-driven organizations. Watch out. What unifies you with the community you belong to? If you unify the community because you hate something, say you hate the Jew or you hate the black guy or very common today, you hate the white heterosexual male and that's the only thing that unifies you, That means you're unified through hatred and objection. You're weak. You have a very weak organization that has to constantly react at its abject and go after the abject constantly to find any form of shared metaphysics or shared sense of purpose. And it's really weak. If you create a swarm, you have to create a fetish. This is why I wrote the book Synthesis with, with John Sedeckis. I'm saying that if you do create a phallic vision, an idea of you're heading somewhere, you've got a goal that you want to reach, and you're going to reach it together. Create, create that sense of shared purpose within the group. That's strong. And you don't have to hate anybody. You know, you don't have to compare yourself with anybody else. You have your goal set, and within the group, you enjoy going towards this goal. That creates a lasting community that can last over time. It can possibly last eons. Its, it's ultimate enemy will be corruption, if nothing else. But it will last as long as it questions itself, and it's focused on its vision, and it moves in that direction. And this is what a brilliant organization does. This is what Moses and Aaron did when they led the Israelites out of Egypt into the Promised Land. That is the perfect example of a fetish-driven community. And what happens is that once you start walking through the desert, is that everybody within the community gets their clear role. So they can be proud of themselves. They get a strong sense of self within the community. And that's a really thriving community. Whereas in an abject-driven community, say a mob, Everybody's scared of everybody else in the mob. Because you could be the next abject. Yeah. They could go after you next. Exactly. You see what they, you see how blood hungry they are. You see that they go after something they hate because they really want the sense of superiority combined with the sense of, of, of community. So they, they mix the sense of superiority with the sense of community, meaning they're not aware of the fact that they're already competing with everybody else for a sense of superiority. What you then do is say you have a culture of victimhood where you compete for who is the biggest victim, which is, of course, nothing but a race to the bottom. Yeah, it is. And then you got Hitler's Germany, and you got any consumptarian mob out there, any lynch mob online today. They all look like this. I, I refuse to call it the identity left. I just call it identitarians, because the extreme right and the identity left are exactly the same thing. It's a competition of who can get to the bottom the quickest, who can turn themselves into such huge victims that they pull everybody else around them with them down back into a black hole. There's nothing constructive about mobs at all. I see them as incredibly dangerous today, and that's exactly what was critical of me too, because it was nothing but a banal lynch mob. Yeah. It did not improve conditions for women at all. I think it's feminism's first major backlash. In Sweden, definitely. In Sweden, definitely. And I think in general, Me Too is going to be perceived that way. And it's precisely the countries where classical feminism was at the strongest, like France, where, people, where women were opposed to Me Too. You saw that's just another American lynch mob running around in the world today in, in the media circus. Not organized. No clear purpose. Definitely dangerous to itself. I would never organize anything as a lynch mob. It's a terrible way of organizing people. A cheap way out. And it's something that's attractive to infantile people who like to be children, who don't want to grow up, 
who feel sorry for themselves, or obsessed with themselves and being narcissistic, and also at the same time as the narcissistic, also want to be ahead of everybody else. They want to be higher up in the hierarchy. So they create a hierarchy in a sense of superiority, like if I can manipulate this crowd to my advantage, I can feel superior to others. So, so the belonging to the lynch mob becomes nothing but an empty power game. Manipulation, there's no love involved anywhere. It's nothing but self-hatred. And this is, yeah, and so you call it abject and fetish, but and there's certain differences. But when I look at groups and I, I see principles at the bottom, what guides this group? And, and when I look at the collectivist, they always run the risk of becoming a mob because you can't really criticize the group. Yes, you can. Can you? Absolutely. Because That's why you have shamans. The shaman is the guy you bring in who stands on the square and says that you're going the wrong way and you have to listen to him. That's why we have the trickster. Yes. Well, who's the trickster? The trickster is the lowest in the entire hierarchy and he likes to be at the lowest of the low, which is precisely why he can speak the truth because he doesn't speak out of self-interest. Why do you think the shaman is out of the forest? He's out of the forest because he's not involved with the intrigues. So he walks into the center of the tribe, he delivers the tough news, you throw rocks at him, but at the end of the day you have to listen to it because if you don't listen to him, the tribe will go under. That's exactly how a good organization works. That's exactly why the shaman and the trickster are defended by the person who possesses the fetish, which is the priest. So you have a priesthood within the tribe, and you're organizing the priesthood accordingly, meaning the priest does not raise children that can take over the tribe. The priest gladly steps out of that position because he has to be uncorrupt as much as possible. And his other voices are the chairman from the forest and the trickster from below, lowest in the hierarchy who cracks all the jokes. And by cracking the jokes actually reveals the inner truth of what's going on in the tribe when the tribe is really vulnerable. Now, you don't see these guys at all in a mob. The trickster is the first guy you kill. Yeah. The shaman, you kill him too. And you don't see much of a priesthood in the mob either. You just see yelling children, well, yeah. yelling fat kids. That's essentially what mobs consist of. They are blinded by their own power that they feel by hating something and being listened to and heard because people are scared of them. And the more scared they can make people, the more powerful they feel. That's actually why they're blinded by their own power and why they have no limit to what they do. Mobs can be incredibly destructive. And the tragedy is that it is hard for us as human beings to differentiate between the fetish and the abbey. They look so similar. So how do we differentiate between them? Well, the problem is we're attracted by ambivalence. So we're attracted both by evil and good, if you'd like to use those terms. We're attracted both by the dark and the light. We're attracted by that which we can't really decide what it is because we have to study it. And that means in, in our work, in Sodekvist in my work, we call it fetish object or the Catholic's object. The Catholics, so the Catholics object was we're attracted to. And I think we have to be humble enough to understand that we are as human beings attracted to Catholic object. And the fact that the Catholic object promises meaning in the world and it promises unity with other human beings is why we're so damn attracted to it. And then we have to step in in a sort of priestly manner, carefully study, is this Catholic object a fetish or an object? Because it reveals everything about the group we're about to form. Why are we attracted to this? And then, what is it that the abject promises you? Well, you hate something you're not even familiar with. You distance yourself from it. You're allowed to throw rocks at it. You're allowed to kill it. You feel no compassion for it whatsoever because you hate yourself so much you cannot feel compassion. So you're in the wrong place to begin with. 
You're full of self-hatred to begin with. You can hate something on that magnitude without feeling anything for it whatsoever. Because if you do feel compassion towards others, you also know what self-love is. So would you say that the Me Too movement failed because they hate men more than they love women? No, they hate themselves. So they hate, they them hate themselves. themselves. Only people who feel self-hatred can react that way. It's a form of a total lack of self-respect behaving that way. They see themselves as victims. Yeah, and that's self-hatred. It is, and it's also weakness. It's very comfortable. It means you're a little princess. You, you, must know, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to take responsibility for anything. You don't have to take responsibility for the high heels and the lipstick you wore to work. You don't have to take responsibility for the fact you did sleep with the boss to get ahead. And then when you didn't get ahead, you turned against him and said that he sexually harassed you. You have to take responsibility for the fact you changed your entire life story 50 times to service your interest. You have to take responsibility for the fact you're a liar. Because you're a little princess. You cannot be attacked. And that is the definition of weakness. Yes. And that's exactly what the Me Too movement could not take criticism. It reacted with a vengeance against any form of criticism, even the criticism that could have made it stronger. It attacked all the men and women who questioned it. Fiercely. That proves it's weak. That's not a sign of strength at all. If you're strong, you just say, oh, great, I get criticism. Give me criticism. I might grow. I might, I might learn something from it. Give it to me. If you can't take criticism, you're an infantile and you're incredibly weak. And that's why I wasn't impressed with the Me Too movement. If this is how far women have gotten in 2017, they haven't gotten very far at all. I think that's an excellent end point, actually. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you for listening to The Aryan and the Jew. Even though it's mostly The Aryan and not so much Jew, Alexander Bard can be followed on Twitter under his nom de guerre at Bardissimo. That's Bardissimo with at least two S's or on Facebook, under his real name, Alexander Bard. Apart from an earlier life as a pop star and a TV personality, he is an author and philosopher, focusing on the melding of man and technology, which he really showed off in this episode. Together with Jan Söderqvist, he has written several books, ranging from the Netocrats in 2000 to Syntheism in 2014, where they found a new religion for the age of information technology. He has just released his latest book, Digital Libido, which can be found online. He has written that also together with Jan Söderqvist. Me, I'm not particularly religious, but you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, mostly on www.aronflam.com and in the podcast Deconstructive Critique. The links to Alexander's social media books and especially his latest book digital libido and this podcast can also be found there until arian Jew show gets its own web page until next time have a good unit of time